So um, tonight's topic is disidentifying from non-helpful thoughts. James has taught me, uh, James has been my mentor for quite a lot of years, and um, James has taught me that a great sort of guide for giving Dharma talks is to check in with what's really salient for me in my own practice. And there's been some challenges in my family of origin. Everybody's fine, but it's been challenging. And um, there's this old saying, when in stress, we regress. I have a long practice. I meditate every morning and I am very uh, supported by my practice. And with the stress that's been going on, um, some old negative thinking has been rising up. And so I've been calling on the practices um, that really address that specifically. And I wanted to bring them to you in case they're helpful to you as well. So helpful to me. So what does the Buddha say about negative thoughts? Well, quite a lot. Um, but here's uh, here's one way that it was put by Ajahn Amaro, senior Buddhist teacher and monk, said the Buddha described how he divided thoughts into two different categories. On the one hand, wholesome thoughts, which lead to happiness and peacefulness. And on the other, those that lead to harm or confusion or stress. So that word harm, I, I want to unpack that word a little bit, because like when I first hear it, I think of, you know, sort of really harsh out there harm, you know, stuff. But harm can be subtle. If we have, um, you know, thoughts that are activating our nervous system and bringing on any kind of level of fight, flight or freeze or just distress or contraction, anxiety, depression, some sadness or grief. If those kinds of emotions, which can be held skillfully, but they're not fun, if those kinds of emotions are being kind of routinely invoked by thoughts in our own heads, then I would call that harm. Again, you know, harm is kind of a heavy word, but it, it can definitely lead down a path to harm. Let's put it that way. Divides thoughts into two different categories, wholesome thoughts, which lead to happiness and peacefulness. And then the thoughts that lead to harm or confusion or stress. Now, remember when the Buddha began his many years of teaching, he said, and he said repeatedly throughout all those years, I teach only two things, suffering and the end of suffering. And in fact, addressing thought, and particularly how to work with non-helpful thoughts, when you look at the Buddhist teachings through that lens, you see that that's largely what he has been, he was teaching how to work with our minds, talk about the mind, like a wild horse, monkey mind, you know, 
when we get a little bit of mindfulness, we see that the mind has a mind of its own and it, it the, the kind of different conditioning that it's absorbed like a sponge over a lifetime, kind of just, it just spews out depending on what kind of knocks on the door of which neural firings. And some of that stuff might be unskillful in the sense of not supporting happiness and peacefulness. Jack Cornfield said, our life is shaped and determined by our thoughts. Usually we're only half conscious of the way thoughts direct our life. We're lost in thought as if it were reality. We take our own mental creations quite seriously, endorsing them without reservation. So the Buddha taught about these three energies that create suffering, greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, one delusion that we all fall prey to, I do too, every day, <laughs> is the delusion that our thoughts have substance, or that they're who we are, or that we're somehow obliged to believe them. None of that is the case. And practice can help us uh, disidentify, unhook, unfuse, take an observational stance and have some discernment about which thoughts we invest with meaning. There are a number of teachings that the Buddha gave, too many actually, I just picked out a few uh, to offer to kind of point in this direction of non-identification or, or non-attachment to, to thoughts. And the first, as I mentioned, um, when I sent out, I don't know if you're on the mailing list for the Insight Community of Berkeley, but if you are, I, I put this in the title or in the description. Um, the Buddha taught non-attachment to views, non-attachment to views, which can include momentary views about ourselves, others, and life that upset us. It's a really interesting teaching and it's not all about uh, views of self and other in the world. It can be any kind of view. When we get super attached to it and, and kind of super righteous about it, we can create separation and harm for ourselves and sometimes for others. It's fine to have views, but to hold them with perspective and with compassion, including the views of others. Anyway, here's a, here's a little part of this teaching. Um, it's condensed from the Paramataka Sutta, Buddhist teaching on non-attachment to views. He said, a person who associates themselves with certain views, considering the views as best and making them supreme 
is not free from contention. Those skilled in judgment say that a view becomes a bond if, relying on it, one regards everything else as inferior. Therefore, a practitioner should not present themselves as equal to, nor imagine themselves to be inferior nor better than another. <laughs> we're not equal, we're not inferior, we're not better than. Okay, so then what are we? <laughs> well, this mind that's trying to create a sense of self is always trying to figure that out and will like land with some hierarchy and then it'll flip depending on, you know, causes and conditions. Or maybe there's some assumption around better than or worse than or or some dichotomy where we, we move back and forth between the two. Or we've landed with equal. Which is definitely progress if you've been stuck on the better than, worse than merry-go-round. But even equal is creating a sense of self. And when we look, when we look and see, it's really thoughts that are creating this identity and when we become rigid around that identity and those thoughts uh, we can't we can't breathe around that anymore we can't see alternatives and and as i was mentioning about compassion regarding the views of others sometimes we lose our capacity for compassion this is very natural but if we can infuse compassion into how we're perceiving the views of others. Again, there's a little bit more space. And who benefits from that? You. So how do we start this process of non-identification with views, views of self, or even just views that are, that are we see are not serving us well, but that are persistent. So the first, you know, and this is going to surprise no one here. The first strategy is mindfulness. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha said, practitioners, like, I love this. This is like, he's so excited and enthusiastic. He goes, practitioners <laughs> this is the direct path for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation for the disappearance of stress and discontent you know he's like a zealot i love it you know like try this what is it what is it he's telling us to try invoking this natural beautiful capacity that we have to be non-judgmentally aware of present moment phenomena. We were just practicing it. And there are four different sort of areas or territories that he teaches us to bring this beautiful capacity for non-judgmental awareness. The first is your physical reality, body sensations, sound, sight, taste, and smell. There's so much here that's happening all the time, but usually not 
we're not uh, grasping it because we're our awareness is so hijacked with identification to thought. And the thoughts are all, none of the thought, the thoughts are all just happening naturally and organically. I've read a number of times that the mind produces thoughts like the mouth produces saliva. It's just going to keep coming. We're not waiting for all the thoughts to dry up so that we can notice the other senses. We're turning this awareness to the senses so that the thinking can kind of take its proper status among these other phenomena arising in the present moment. And with awareness present, the thoughts begin to transmute. Insight begins to happen. We're seeing reality for what it is rather than through the veil of causes and conditions. So the first is, you know, the, the body and all the sensations. That's the first foundation. Second foundation is uh, what's called feeling tone, becoming aware that any phenomena that we're aware of has this quality of either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And just because it has something, say, unpleasant, doesn't mean we have to react with aversion. We can actually have a response of compassion or allowing or accepting for just this moment or com compassionate action. A lot of different possibilities with unpleasant feeling tone. Same with pleasant. Pleasant will often make us reach toward, want more. When we're aware of pleasant, then we might choose to feel the craving and not act on it and find that that's possible. Similarly, neutral. We tend to space out on neutral or get bored, but we can be present and find a whole world in neutral feeling tone. It's a lot of blessings in the land of neutral feeling tone. Blades of grass, you know, simple, momentary, non-dramatic experience. So that's the second foundation of mindfulness. And I'm just, I'm trying to pass actually through these to get to the third foundation of mindfulness, which is mind. So we can be mindfully aware of thoughts and just note them and name them and not take them personally. And this is a practice. Oh, you know. There's that thought about my dog. <laughs> oh, there's the, the way that the Buddha describes it is. Uh, and how practitioners do we regarding the mind abide contemplating the mind? Here we know a craving mind to be craving and a mind without craving or calm or peaceful to be peaceful. We know an angry mind to be angry or resentful. 
and a mind without anger to be without anger or resentment. We know a confused mind to be confused and a clear mind to be clear. And the Buddha goes on with all these different descriptions of sort of different kinds of mind states. So in modern parlance, we can label thoughts as, you know, certainly everything the Buddha is describing, like, oh, there's jealousy, oh, there's, you know, admiration, whatever it is. We can also, there's certain ones, kinds of thoughts that are really common, remembering, planning, planning's a big one in this culture, fantasizing. And this is when we begin to bring our mindful awareness to the thoughts themselves, rather than being just completely in the surround sound theater where we, where we are the thoughts. I heard this wonderful Buddhist teacher, Ruth King, say, rather than be the thoughts, we can see the thoughts. And that's what mindfulness does. And what happens when we're bringing awareness to our thoughts is that our locus of identification changes. Rather than being the thoughts, we're seeing the thoughts. We've moved our chair. We're no longer in the surround sound believing the movies. We're actually sitting just outside of it now saying, oh, look, there's remembering and there's planning and there's fantasizing and there's resenting <laughs> and there's worrying and there's the different kinds of things our minds do. And there's peace right in that moment of becoming the observer something I hear a lot of Western Dharma teachers saying now is that loving awareness is our true nature. Because who are you? I mean, this is a bigger question. And, but just for now, if you're not your body, and you're not your thoughts or your emotions, then who are you? Well, one place to land with that is this notion of loving awareness, non-judgmental, friendly awareness of what is in this moment. So mindfulness itself is always just so fundamental for coming back to, it's a different way of being in the world than living in our thoughts. And we kind of only get two choices. We're in our thoughts or we're here now. I heard uh, Buddhist teacher Christiane Wolf say, a wandering mind, meaning lost in thoughts, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. It's because of the nature of the default mode network, the, the these parts of the brain that together are the create the sort of automated mind, conditioned mind. It's uh, wired to hypervigilance, it's, you know, looking for signs of danger, 
in the future or the past or the present, not looking for well-being, which very often is right here in front of our nose if we weren't lost in thoughts. So first strategy for disidentifying from thoughts is mindfulness practice. And I encourage all of us, myself included, to make a commitment to a daily practice. Even if it's five minutes that you can do, five minutes is worth it. Because as we practice, then we have more accessibility to mindfulness through the day. A second strategy, and I, I'm not going to spend too much time on here, but I want to mention is concentration. In the um, Buddhist teaching on the Eightfold Noble Path practices that lead to freedom, one of them, an important one, is concentration. The mind can become focused. And we have this experience in daily life, you know, when you become focused on your gardening or your cooking or your crossword puzzle. What is that sense of pleasure there? It's the mind being focused in one place. That is taking us away from identification with thoughts. So there's a whole world and you can go there if you want to a whole world around concentration in the Buddhist uh, territory. <laughs> There's amazing experiences to be had. And one of the first things to go is the identification with thoughts when we're concentrated. So related to concentration practice, but, but also for me in my own life more of a more of a accessible more of accessible daily life practice um, are the brahma viharas which i was just mentioning in the announcements because james about to teach a class on them the four heart practices um, they're concentration practices in themselves and so they bring relief in the sense of focusing the mind on beautiful things um, and then they're also a way to redirect the mind, which as I'll mention in a few minutes is, is a skillful strategy in itself. Um, and these four heart practices are loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. They're all natural parts of being a human being. It's just that we cultivate them. So they show up more often in our lives. And the Buddhist teaching is that wholesome thoughts and actions create well-being. And I'm just telling you that. And, and what I did with that teaching was I went and tried it for myself. I was like, okay, I grew up in this culture thinking that happiness came from acquiring and looking certain ways and doing certain activities. I did not necessarily grow up with a routine message around happiness comes from wholesomeness. 
that was I mean it was it's in there it's in the culture you know it's in stories and stuff but I didn't I hadn't I didn't quite have a grasp on this it's like profound wisdom but it is but you can experiment for yourself and see so these are four different uh, ways to work with your mind to uh, offer it the habit of wholesome wholesomeness Loving kindness. This is just a little bit of the Buddha's teaching on loving kindness, the Buddha's words on loving kindness. He's suggesting that we are all, if we're wanting to practice loving kindness, what we do is we wish in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. all beings that includes yourself and that includes the beings that horrify you and everyone in between we're training our own minds and noticing what our hearts do noticing what happens to our well-being when we practice and i always think it's really really crucial to do the caveat of wishing all beings be at ease can be completely sincere while at the same time our boundaries are in place we're telling truth to power we're taking compassionate action wherever that's available we're feeling the grief you know all that can be side by side they're not mutually exclusive. In gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, may all beings be at ease. In Western culture, in addition to our difficult people, we quite often leave ourselves out of that well-wishing. We believe some childhood experience that we motivate ourselves and become better people with shame and blame. And so we have these powerful inner critics. And the Buddha taught, you know, if there's any kind of shame, resentment going on internally, that we won't find our way to freedom that way. And modern neuroscience confirms that. Oh, beating ourselves up or having a habitual inner critic slows us down and we can motivate ourselves with compassion and we can learn that at any age thanks to neuroplasticity <laughs> so wonderful ah <sighs>
loving kindness. So phrases like, may I be safe, may I be peaceful, may I be as healthy as possible, may I live with ease. And practicing them even when they don't feel sincere, just to kind of begin to root in the neural pathways for this language. It can grow, it can grow on its own in there and then suddenly surprise us in a beautiful way. Giving language to this, you know, what's being taught as a major part of who we are, loving presence, giving it some language. May you be safe. May you be peaceful. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. So that's loving kindness. And then compassion, particularly self-compassion. And that's a whole nother talk, multiple talks, some of which I've given here and James has too. Um, practicing self-compassion. But just to say a couple things about it, hands to heart can be really powerful. Soothing touch and language, again, language, but compassionate language, like may I be kind to myself, may I accept myself as I am. Joy, uh, particularly the practice that I recommend around joy for a daily practice is gratitude. Just let yourself have five minutes of gratitude while you're walking or doing the dishes or go to bed at night. It uh, illuminates the dream of life gives us a proper perspective, antidotes the negativity bias. And then equanimity, equanimity, balance. So uh, there are a lot of different phrases, traditional phrases that are more than a thousand years old and I'm presently for my equanimity practice that I do every day, just using the phrase, this belongs. When my mind is getting to aversion, not wanting, resisting, freaking out, <laughs> I'll say this belongs. Bringing some acceptance to what is. So, and these are all, this is like, I guess this talk is sort of like a buffet, like, and there's way too much to eat here. So if something like calls you in, like you're like, oh, wow, self-compassion or, oh, wow, you know, equanimity or whatever, there's gr a great deal more to explore. <laughs> yeah, but. But I just want to say that these, these heart practices, they can be done daily and they really help the mind.
disidentify from unhelpful thoughts and give the mind someplace else to go that lifts the heart and is restorative and helps with resilience. And so finally, there's working directly with thoughts, which the Buddha taught um, in his particular teaching called the Vitakasantana Sutta, called the removal of d difficult thoughts. Um, and we have it today too in, in modern psychotherapy, it's called cognitive reappraisal. It's the same thing. Working with our thoughts, not taking our thoughts to be self, but rather just discerning with mindfulness whether they serve us or not. And if they don't, if they're pulling us down into depression or out into anxiety, then working with them. This wonderful um, Buddhist practitioner that was the teacher of many of our teachers, the teacher of Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, her name was Deepa Ma. And she basically awoke all the teaching, all the, I, she died before I started practicing, but everything about her, her teachings, what, what's written about her suggests that she had fully awoken from suffering. She was a very poor woman. She lived in a slum in Calcutta. She had a very difficult life and she awoke from suffering. And she said, one of her teachings was, whatever beliefs you have, ask yourself, are you sure? Who says? Why not? Cognitive reappraisal, really looking the thoughts straight in the face and going, hmm. The Buddha taught that an unhelpful thought is any thought that leads to your distress or the distress of others. The Buddha said, like a skilled carpenter who removes a coarse peg by knocking it out with a fine one, so a person removes a pain-producing thought by substituting a beautiful one. So we talked about the, you know, mindfulness and then the four Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. I'll give you an example from, I was on a retreat, a two week retreat in May. And I, one night after a long day of practice, I walked into my room and there's a, a mirror. There's a little sink and mirror in these rooms at this retreat center and I walked into the room and I glanced up and I saw my image in the mirror and this very negative and familiar thought went like, oh my God, your hair, 
look at you, you look, you know, the mean, the mean, uh, critical voice came alive. And um, because I was on retreat and had been working with these practices for a while, I immediately knew like a skilled carpenter who removes a coarse peg by knocking it out with a fine one. So a person removes a pain producing thought by substituting a beautiful one. And I looked at the image and I said, you do not deserve this. You are wonderful. I'm sorry. And that's all. It, that's, that's it. You know, if the self, if we're creating a self around, you know, something negative, we can spiral down with all these negative emotions that go with a negative thought. But if we catch it, it's mindfulness and flip it to loving kindness or compassion or even sometimes joy or at least equanimity, may I accept this moment as it is? May I accept you as you are. Then the trajectory of harm is really lifted and sometimes removed altogether. This is a quote from Buddhist teacher Martine Batchelor. If you have a difficult thought, you can replace it by thinking a positive thought or considering a positive quality, such as friendliness or compassion, turn the attention that wants to go to the difficult thought into a thought about friendliness and bring a sense of friendliness to your experience in order to change the tone of the difficult thought. So I don't only do this for myself, but I do it for others too. If I notice some kind of critical, resentful, voice coming in um, towards others. As soon as I notice, I'll work with it. May I hold you in kindness. May I accept you as you are. May I be present. May I practice patience. So Martine Batchelor gives an example. You're waiting for somebody, you're meeting them at nine, they're not there. Nine, 10 past nine, what's going on? 9.20, they don't love me. 9.30, nobody loves me. 9.40, I hate the world. So we can, at any point, mindfulness can come in and notice this all going on. It can be disrupted. And we can reframe, we can choose a different story. I hope they're okay. I'm okay. No, holding the whole thing in compassion or friendliness. So one more, one more practice that I want to bring to you. Uh, Tara Brock teaches a lot from a teacher, a Tibetan teacher, Tsonyi Rinpoche, who taught that thoughts very often can be real and the fact that they're really arising in our minds and really impacting our emotions. 
but not true. And so to help kind of work with that, I wanted to show you. Okay, now to do this, I'm going to need to share my screen. Um, a strategy. This strategy, you know, does not come directly from Buddhism, but it does come from a person who awoke to the reality that she was in her thoughts. It's a teacher named Byron Katie. And um, she had that awakening, not, not unlike Eckhart Tolle, very similar kind of a thing, really, really, really suffering. And then sort of just suddenly had this big, this happens to some people, suddenly had this big awakening and uh, found all this freedom when she was no longer identified with her thoughts. And so she created a little sort of inquiry to help work with thoughts, and I'm going to show it to you. Okay. So this is actually a written exercise. Many, many people have found that thoughts are kind of sneaky and they kind of jump in and out when they're just in your head. But when you write them down, they're just, you get, immediately get a little bit of observational distance, which is key, of course, and then you can work with them a little in a little slower pace. So this is this inquiry. So the first question you ask, say there's a negative thought you ask, is it true? And your answer might be yes or no. Do I know for a fact that it's true? You either do or you don't. How do I feel when I believe it? Usually if it's a negative thought, there's some crummy feelings that go with it. Who am I without it? Who, you know, meaning, who would I be? What would my internal life be like if this thought couldn't enter my head? And then this is where the real sort of fun part of it comes. You turn it around to its opposite and then challenge yourself to produce three ways. The opposite thought, opposite thought is as truer, truer than the original thought. So this practice can allow us to really just, you know, kind of in slow motion, but that's a, that's a nice way to work. Slow is fast because slow keeps going. Helps us see kind of in slow motion, but helps us see that the mind's certainty about its thoughts isn't, isn't right. There's a lot of uncertainty and bringing that out can kind of just loosen everything up so that we can begin to discern and choose which thoughts we're going to really buy into. So I'm going to show you an example of this. Is that it? Yeah. So this, uh, a friend of mine offered this anonymously as a way to show the practice. His thought that was coming up a lot and that comes up a lot for a lot of us, um, leftover 
causes and conditions from long ago, I'm not good enough. I asked him, is it true? He said, yes. I was believing it. Do I know for a fact that it's true? He said, no, he doesn't actually know for a fact that it's true. He just thinks it's true, you know? How do I feel when I believe it? Small, inferior, weak. I want to crawl into a hole, embarrassed, unworthy of kindness. Well, ouch, right? Thoughts that cause harm. That's what the Buddha was talking about. That's what we want to look for and not buy into. When we believe these thoughts, wow, you know, they make life hard. Who am I without it? If this thought could not enter my head, I'm not good enough, who am I actually? Well, more confident, more secure, more open-hearted, proud, more generous. My goodness, this thought, which probably originally, you know, habituated itself out of self-protection, is no longer helping. And we can see that when we notice these, you know, what, what we would be like without that thought occurring. Turn it around to its opposite, I'm good enough. And then three ways the opposite is as true or truer. He said, I'm a unique person, I'm a part of the universe, I have talent, I have something to offer the world. He knew those things about himself too, it's just that they were getting covered over by that scary belief, I'm not good enough. All right. So, Jack Cornfield said, the Buddha was the first cognitive therapist. <laughs> he was, as far as I know too. Yeah. I want to work with our minds and it makes a huge difference in terms of our peace. All right, I'm going to finish there. Thank you for your kind attention. We have a few minutes if anybody has anything they want to share, any thoughts, reflections, questions. You happen to thank you so much for your talk. You're so welcome. Oh my gosh, how uplifting. Um, do you know when the um, Brahma Vihara uh, four-week uh, online course is happening? Or yeah. should I check the website? Uh, I do know, and I can call that up. And I'm really glad you're interested in that. Um, let's see. Okay, it, the, yes, the Brahma Viharas, four Tuesdays, November 1st to November 22nd. So it starts this coming Tuesday night. Okay. Um, he doesn't have the time on it, but did you see that link I put in the chat? Uh, yeah, but I'll have to check the website. Okay. Because, yeah. Yeah, it's on, it's on the Insight uh, Meditation Community Berkeley website. Yeah. yeah. And you can click there. Um, it's it's six thirty to eight thirty. 
Oh, I thank you. Up. Yeah, I signed up for oh, it. Thank so, you. Yeah, it's 630 to 830 and it's recorded so you can look at it like 48 hours later if you can't be. That's your, wonderful. A live one. And that's Pacific time, of course. Right. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. I just wanted to say thank you. This was a really timely talk. Oh. Um, and I, I love the, the equanimity saying of this belongs. I just kind of knocked the wind out of me to hear it. Wow. So, so fitting. Um, so, yeah, I really appreciate that. Great. I'm so glad. Thanks, Zach. Eve, I had yeah. a thought. Yeah, please. <laughs> Um, like <clears throat> for like the idea of like the inner critic and also yeah. the, idea, the idea of, um, holding myself to a higher standard. And so being very mean to myself about that because yeah. for not making it to the higher standard. Yeah. But I thought of this, I thought of this for an idea. Hey, Charlie, I got a higher standard for you. How about <laughs> self-friendliness? Instead of beating myself up all the time, you know, that's, wow, love. That, there's a higher standard for you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Brings tears to uh, my eyes. Thank you, Charlie. Oh my God. Eve, you brought tears to my eyes. Your whole talk. So, <laughs> Thanks. <thank you. laughs> that's a beautiful higher standard. Gosh, could we all have that higher standard? Yeah. Ah, all right. Anybody else? Any anything else about disidentifying from non-helpful thoughts? <laughs> what was it that Ruth King said again? Yeah, Ruth King said, "Rather than being no, it rhymes, so that wasn't quite right. But it's something like, we're, we don't have to be our thoughts; we can see our thoughts." Okay, thank you. Yeah. I love that so much. She said it like nonchalantly in the middle of a long talk. And I was like, you know, that's right. We can be the observer. We can be. Says it all in very succinctly. Yeah, exactly. This is a good mantra. That's Yeah, yeah totally. Thank you. Thank you. I, I have a question. Great. So um, in my never ending um, uh, desire to be liked and like myself, sometimes I find myself like saying, wow, that was intelligent. Wow, that was pretty cool. But then I think, well, no, nah, no, nah, never mind that. No, nah, I'm not going there because I'm not judging anything. I mean, if I'm saying that now, I'm going to be critical on myself later yeah and even i can remember in college i was the things that were cool with the 20 year old or 21 year old guys i even try to go back to that standard and i'm thinking man you're really desperate i mean just forget about it so i just uh try to just be in the present just doing my yeah. thing and i'm not commenting on it you know so 
That's great. And I, I love that you, you know, that what you just modeled for us about observing what our mind does, what the mind does and its, its attempts. And I have to say it's poignant, you know, because that desire that we all have to like ourselves and be liked by others is a very foundational desire to belong. You know, it's very limbic brain, you know, mm. and, and so compassion for this mind doing the best that it can, you know, based on its memories and it's, it's sort of wanting to take care of us, wanting to do what it thinks the culture needs or wants, you know, having compassion, but then also your solution, you know, there was part of the, I wonder if I have it here, part of the, um, I know I'm, I stopped mid-sentence, pardon me. I have to not do two things at once. Part of the non-attachment to views teaching from the Buddha is exactly what you just said, that ultimately it's non-attachment to any views. Mm -hmm. Because exactly what you're saying, if we're even just attaching attaching to um, what seem like uplifting views in the moment, the attachment itself is operating, and will then show up somewhere else where it doesn't where it doesn't help us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But also, I mean, and you didn't say this. I'm not sure this is true for you, but I know in my mind, there have been times where um it'll it'll go from less than to better than and both of those places are lonely lonely islands mm. no no there's nothing good about either one you know and and it's so interesting that the buddha even said equal to isn't even very useful mm. it's like any kind of structure where you're creating a solid sense of self ultimately separates us. Yeah. So I, I love what you're saying about letting go of it all and just, mm -hmm. just dropping into the present moment. Mm -hmm. But when the mind does go to those negative thoughts or those old thoughts, holding it with as much compassion as we can. I remember once talking to James about this and he said, he said, sometimes he goes like this, Oh, mind. Oh, mind. Just doing the best you can. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, blessings, everybody. We'll just dedicate the merit. May the merit of our time together and our, our practices and our hearts, our intentions, May the merit of all of this be for the benefit of all beings everywhere, including ourselves. May all beings everywhere be free. Mm -hmm. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. Wishing you a good week. Thank you. Thanks. Amy. Bye. Thank Pleasure. You. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Bye Susan. Good night. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.